You are listening to East of Eden, a sermon series taught in the summer of 2008 at Hocassin Baptist Church. Today's sermon is entitled, Entering into the Ark. And now, Pastor John. Good morning. It's good to see you today. We're continuing this morning in our study of Genesis chapter 4 through 11 that we've entitled East of Eden. And today we come to the famous story, Noah's Ark. Now we're going to spend two weeks on Noah's Ark uh, because it's a big story. It actually encompasses three chapters. But here's the deal with Noah's Ark. It's got to be, if it's not the number one kid's Bible story, it's got to be in the top five. You know, we, uh, we tell our kids Noah's Ark. We tell them David and Goliath. We tell them the birth of Jesus. Sometimes we tell them the resurrection and the crucifixion of Jesus. And if we're daring, we talk to them about, uh, you know, Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But uh, Noah's Ark sits up there. It's so up there that some of you may have either been born or have raised your children in rooms decorated with Noah's Ark. Am I right? You go to Babies R Us, which I have done purely for the purpose of this sermon, and, and you can find Noah's Ark paraphernalia with which to decorate your, your child's nursery. They can have Noah's Ark sheets and Noah's Ark clock. They can have Noah's Ark uh, music box which plays the, you know, because you want to be able to put your children to bed with the wonderful thoughts of Noah's Ark, right? And in our home, we, we, are, we are not above this in our house. I have, this all comes from our house. We have uh, our Noah's Ark children's poofy thing. That, and kids, by the way, never play with this stuff. This is for moms to buy to decorate their... Uh, and then we have this, uh, this, this is our Noah's Ark book. This is the only one we had in our house which makes me feel bizarre because it's in German. Uh, Noah's grosses boat. Uh, so if you ever want to know what a, a good Bible-Geschichte on Noah, you can come by and read this. But we, right, we, right, we tell our kids the story of Noah's Ark. And there's a lot of good reasons for it. The elements of Noah's Ark um, are so picturesque. You have animals, all these animals, which just a kid really gloms onto, Right? Because when, we're, you know, when you're raising kids and you're reading books, how many of your books are, what sound does a horse make? What sound does a cat make? What sound does a dog make? And so Noah's Ark just plays right into that identi- identifying thing that children love so much. And then there's colors and there's rainbows and there's a big boat and there's different things happening and there's a good God who sends a promise at the end, right? It ends so well, doesn't it? I mean, the Noah's Ark has such a good ending that I understand why we tell it to our children. But what's interesting is we're always patient to talk about the end of the story of Noah's Ark, but when we're talking with our kids, we hardly ever tell them the beginning of the story. So here's an example. This book here, I, <clears throat> I'll translate it. God said to Noah, build a big boat. That's the first line in the book. That's how the story starts. But you know, and I know, that's not how the story starts. We're picking up halfway through the story. And what happens is as kids get older, 
when they're old enough to get beyond the story, the story of Noah's Ark becomes less popular. So, you know, with, we, when they're in fifth and sixth grade, we still tell stories of David and Goliath, the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Noah's Ark sometimes becomes a little less significant. And then by the times we're, we're adults, uh, I don't think we read Genesis 4 to 11 much at all. And not to mention Noah's Ark. And in fact, there's a, even when, uh, so when Hollywood gets a hold of this story, which they have, right, and they make Evan Almighty, the interesting thing about the, the movie Evan Almighty, which, by the way, is a good, healthy film. It's fun to watch. I encourage, encourage you to enjoy it. But in this film, almost nobody dies in the flood. They're kind of standing by this big boat, you know, and they've teased Noah this whole time, and he's got this beard, and it's funny, and it's fun to watch. And, like, the whole town's like, Noah, you're, you're stupid, or whatever they're saying. I don't remember. And then they see the water coming, and it's, hey, everybody, on the boat. And, like, 900 people climb up on the boat. Whew. That was a close one. Or if you notice, if you go to the website and look at Evan Almighty, they'll be very particular to tell you that no animals were harmed during the filming of the movie, <laughs> which I find ironic because it's a story in which almost every animal on the face of the earth is destroyed. But we, what we do is we get very comfortable dealing with Noah's Ark by telling ourselves half the story, the fun half, once they're on the boat and the water is covering the face of the earth. And another way that we deal with it, particularly as adults, is we unbelieve it. It's one of those challenging narratives of, of biblical history that, you know, you've probably been there in your life where someone says, Ah, you know, I'm, I'm into the Christian thing, but do you really believe the Noah's Ark thing? I mean, really, come on. That's it's just, man. It's just, the whole earth? Every animal? Come on. And we go through that, and we kind of reiterate and reiterate and reiterate all of our doubts. And sometimes I wonder if our doubts have to do with that or have to do with the reason the story's there, which is what we're going to talk about today. And so you'll find scholars who will say, well, we've looked uh, at almost every people group on the face of the earth, and what we find is, is all these different people groups have a flood account in their heritage. Right? Most people groups that have a lengthy heritage, they will eventually have some tale of a flood. And so scholars and scientists will say, we acknowledge that there probably was some great flood, or at least a number of great floods that have occurred throughout human history. But they'll say, but the biblical account is simply the Judeo-Christian story or myth or legend to deal with that flood. So they'll say Noah's Ark is a human invention to deal with a historic catastrophe. And I think this morning, my goal is to say it's quite the opposite. This morning we're here to say that Noah's Ark is God's invention to deal with a human catastrophe of mankind. And that's the whole story. So we're going to talk about the whole story. We're going to talk about it over two Sundays. So this is your Bad News Bear Sunday. Uh, we're going to get the first half. Next Sunday we'll complete it. But the catastrophe of human nature, to talk about that, is an uncomfortable topic. It doesn't sell well. It's not the, kind of, it's not the easiest way to start talking about the Lord. It's much easier to say, let me just tell you how I'm blessed by the Lord. And those are good and useful ways, but it's part of the story. Telling the whole story of Noah certainly doesn't make for good bedsheets in your nursery. And so it should cause us to be thoughtful about the ways that we enter in. Because sometimes, if we don't tell the whole story, then the part we're telling isn't accurate. And I wonder if the truth is not really true when it isn't the whole truth. 
So let's start. This morning we're going to start to tell the whole story of Noah's flood. So if you'll pray with me, we'll get started. Father, I pray your blessings on our time and our study, on our meditation. And Lord, we pray your conviction of your spirit on our hearts to change us for the better. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, we'll start in 6 verse 1. And as you're turning there, I have placed an article in your bulletin that talks about Genesis 1 through 4. If you don't know why, you will shortly. Uh, So I can't talk about it at length. That's why I wrote you a little article. The goal, though, is not to read the article right now. All right? So even I want to open the article and read it. Uh, Just because, you know, now there's an article I must read. I encourage you, the article will still be there after this message. You can read it on your way home. But uh, I won't talk at length about some of the issues in 6, 1 through 5. Uh, And hopefully that article sets some of that to bed. This is going to set the stage. Let me uh, begin to read here. Genesis 6, verse 1. When man began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The stage that is being set is a continuation from what we've been talking about since the first Sunday in this East of Eden series. The whole theme, East of Eden, we said, was to depict the idea that as mankind falls from God's order, they're slowly being pushed away and away and away from the Lord. And in the, in the, in the chapters of Genesis, they seem to be going in an eastward direction, which simply feels that they're moving farther away from the Lord in the same direction. So when Adam and Eve sin in the garden and the Lord expels them from the garden, he expels them to the east of Eden. And then when Cain murders his brother Abel and gets pushed away farther to the land of wandering, he settles in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so there's this idea of further and further and further movement east. And by the time we get to Genesis 6, verse 5, you realize that mankind has moved so far east, they're off the map. They've just just fallen off the deep end, I guess to use like a Noah uh, illustration. They're just all the way off the map. They can't move any farther east. And these, these kind of quizzical passages in Genesis 1 through 4, we don't, I, I can't tell you exactly what they mean. There's some ideas about it, and that's what the article's about. But the gist and the meaning of the scriptures, I think, is preserved here in the sense that they talk about these uh, sons of God and daughters of men. And then in verse 4, they talk about this mysterious Nephilim, or these giant people, so we think. But in Genesis 6, 3, this is what the Lord says. My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. And so all, what we do know is things have been kind of not going south, but going east for quite some time now. And by the time we get to Genesis 6-3, whatever sons of God and daughters of men is, the Lord interrupts the narrative and says, I'm tired of mankind, and I'm setting 
the, the egg timer for 120 years. He's not saying mankind's going to be 120 years old. He's saying 120 years from me saying this, things are going to come to an end. That's, that's what he's relaying there. And it comes right after this sons of God, daughters of men. And then there's this, he gets, the narrator gets back into the story and says, by the way, this is when the Nephilim were there and the sons of God were men of renown. And then it says, Genesis 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So he says, everywhere he looked, he saw evil. And in every thought, every inclination of his thoughts were only evil all the time. The narrator is saying that the degree of wickedness on the earth has increased not only in its expanse, because remember last Sunday we said it was the line of Cain, but now it appears as though it's completely expansive. But over time, everywhere God looks, there's only evil all the time. And so the expanse of evil has increased and the intensity of evil has increased. Not only is it everywhere, but it's every thought. And not only is it every thought, but it's all the time. And so you get this image, this very stark image by Genesis 6, 5, that man has a fatal flaw. And that's our first thought this morning. This is the first area in my mind that when we tell half of the Noah account, we omit this element, that mankind has a fatal flaw. The fatal flaw or the wickedness of mankind is an entry point into the faith. It's, it's one of the starting points. It's a crucial point, And yet we form oftentimes a habit of starting somewhere after it. Way over in, so God said, go build a boat. But the story starts with man's fatal flaw. I find this interesting because the secular humanist worldview has this kind of optimism about mankind. There's a thought, but usually it doesn't happen. Nobody's talking about it now because we're in war. But usually about a decade after some kind of war, then the optimists show back up and they say mankind can produce something. In fact, we were, we were in this period of great optimism all the way through after the war to end all wars, which in and of itself is an optimistic title, isn't it? There was this thought that mankind has solved the problem. And then Hitler showed up and that kind of crushed the humanist philosophy since then. And so there's this idea among men that we are good enough, we can make it, we're inherently good, and the Bible's saying no, there is no worldview, there is no style of government, there is no economic model or paradigm that will bring righteousness on this earth. Capitalism devoid of God is pure and utter greed with no redeeming quality. Because there's nothing that is good apart from the Lord. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying mankind is wicked all the time. But when we tell half the story, we convince ourselves, maybe there's a form of government that'll save us. Maybe there's an economic model that'll save us. Maybe there's a utopian kind of people group we can go in, some retreat area we can go to. But there's not. There will always be pain. There will always be war. There will always be starvation. Mankind is not evolving We are fatally flawed. And this is part of the half of the story that we need to talk about. Because you cannot tell an accurate story of the gospel or of Noah's Ark if you do not have an accurate picture of the human nature. We need to start with an accurate picture of the human nature. And by the way, the Christian faith is the only faith that does this. It's the only one that is bold and courageous enough to say, mankind is the problem. 
and then begin to build from there. And that's what the story does. Let's move on. We'll move on to the verdict here. So if mankind is so wicked, this is what the Lord says. Verse 6. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on earth. And his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground, and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. I am grieved that I have made them. God is about to stop man's undoing. Now this is interesting. The way God creates the, the world and everything in it, it starts in Genesis 1.1, it says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says, Genesis 1.2, it says, And the Spirit hovered over the waters. Right? Because the idea of waters has is, is always been symbolic of this great chaos. And so creation comes out of these chaotic waters. Right? So the Spirit's hovering over the waters, and then God says, let there be light, and there was light. And boom, out of the waters, things start to burst forth over the days of creation. Land bursts forth, and, and the animals begin to teem out, right? And, and God starts separating things. But it all comes out of this watery chaos that he starts with, right? He kind of starts with watery chaos. And after he creates this, right, it's good, it's good, it's good. And there's man who's at the top, and he says, it's, oh, it's very good. And he rests, and then man gets to work. Right? And piece by piece, we start to disassemble God's creation. We start to take it apart and frustrate the order and disrupt the relationships that God has intended to be there. And so finally we get here to Genesis 6, verse 7, and God says, They have undone what I have done. And so I'm breaking this all the way back down to watery chaos again. God's wiping the earth back to Genesis 1, verse 2, because he's about to start doing something New again. That's next week. But he's going to start a new creation. He's going to start, he has this new idea of what's going to happen. But before he can do that, he's going to wash everything away to this watery chaos. And the reason is because of man. He says it, not only did we see it in Genesis 6.5, but we'll see it in Genesis 6.11. So now God's kind of, the story of Noah's commenced, and this is what he says in 6.11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. I think it said corrupt three times. Right? So this is the second time in about eight verses that we've been told very clearly that man is the problem. And then we're told a third time. Look at verse 13. So God says to Noah, I am going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both men, them and the earth. And this brings us to a, our second point this morning, which is not only is man fatally flawed, but there is a limit to God's mercy and his patience. God is, man is fatally flawed, and there is a limit to God's mercy and his patience. Now, if we don't appreciate this, if we don't realize, if we come in with half the story, if we start the story with God said build a boat, and we don't appreciate the fact that the flood is in judgment on man's sinfulness, then we actually are, we can find ourselves in a challenging position. Because if, if, if we think about it, if God says to Noah, go build a boat because mankind is going to be destroyed by a flood, and we don't appreciate the fact that it's because we're wicked, then we start to ask questions like, well, why would God allow a flood to destroy all of mankind? Or is God indifferent? Is God not all-powerful? Wouldn't he stop the flood? 
Aren't those logical things to ask? Or then we, it kind of leads to like the, not, the great question of our time, which is, if God is so good, why do bad things happen to good people? We, our people, we ask that. Our generation asks that all the time. By the way, you don't find that so much in Scripture or in earlier history. It seems to be a specifically postmodern idea that if God is so good, how come my life is not so good? And it's, it comes and spawns in part by the fact that we only tell half of the story. We forget to remember that we're wicked and we're fatally flawed, and we forget to remember that there is a limit to God's patience and His mercy. And that sometimes that limit involves us. Paul describes it this way in Romans 1. Romans 1, he's writing, he's writing a letter to the, to the church in Rome. He starts the letter kind of explaining to the people in Rome human nature. He's building a huge argument to say that all of mankind is in need of salvation that is beyond themselves. Essentially saying the whole story is, is that man is fatally flawed and that God is limited in his patience. And so in this, in the, as he's writing chapter 1 of Romans, he talks about how mankind does terrible, wicked things, how they, they exchange God and the worship of God for worship of idols, how they, they have lustful thoughts and evil desires. And it says this three times in the first chapter. It says, and so the Lord gave them over to their lustful desires or their wicked thoughts or their designs for evil. And it's this notion that Paul's writing about that at some point God lends people over to do the wicked things they want to do. Because he has limited patience and he has limited mercy. I feel that it's, it's exactly the same as what we see in Exodus when the narrator talks about Pharaoh. When the Lord's talking about Pharaoh, these earlier plagues that come on the Pharaoh, it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And towards the end, you know what you get? You kind of get this. So the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. God's saying, fine, if you're not going to work with me, then you will work for me. And I will, I will constrain you and I will judge you. Because there's a limit to God's mercy and there's a limit to his patience. And God will judge the wicked. A second problem that arises if we don't realize that this is part of the whole story. And the more that we censor illustrations of God's judgment and his his, his his justice from the biblical stories, the harder it is to see a need for grace and mercy. So when we start to tell stories like the story of Christ without the crucifixion and the resurrection, or we start to talk about heaven without talking about hell, or we start to tell stories like Noah without the first section, we start to forget what we need saving from. We have this idea that God loves us, that he cares for us, that he wants to be part of our lives, that he has a purpose for us. And that is all good, but that is half of the story. But there's this other half that says God is disappointed in us. God is holy. God is righteous. God is perfectly blameless and will not tolerate fellowship with people who have not submitted themselves for forgiveness. And so when we do not tell the whole story, we sell a gospel that has no need for salvation. Which is why I think that in our time, Almost everybody believes in heaven and almost nobody believes in hell. Because they see no need for salvation. And they have lost all mindfulness of their wickedness. There's a limit to God's mercy and a limit to his patience. 
When we see that there is heaven but not hell, when we see that there is salvation but not forgiveness, when we see no need to confess, and we just expect the Lord to bless us, we become, we, it's easy to forget that the whole story of the gospel involves Christ coming again in judgment. We're in the middle of a story that will come to an end, and the end of that story is the same as Noah. God's mercy and his patience have come to an end. And Christ comes again, and he comes in truth, and he comes to judge. And so this is how it sounds in the book of Matthew. The apostles are talking to Jesus, saying, what is it going to look like in the end times? How will it look? They're they're, they're quizzing him. Okay, and he says this. He says, it's going to look just like the time of Noah. He says this in Matthew 24. He says, it will be like the days of Noah. He says, when people all around are making their way through life, totally mindless of what's about to happen. He'll say, there's people giving, giving hands in marriage, and they're making marry, and they're making a living, and they're raising money, and they're having children, and they're totally oblivious to Noah building this ark. And he says, and in that time, the Son of Man will come, and it will be just like the flood. And then he says, and one will be taken and one left. And I think oftentimes we go, rapture. Right? We, get this, we put on our, like, our end times hat. Right? We start, now is this rapture before the bad stuff or after the bad stuff? Right? I think Jesus' implication is it's going to be like Noah. I don't know if he's talking as much about rapture as he's about judgment. He's saying, look, in the t- when, the, when I come again, it will be like the flood. You won't know I'm coming, and then when I'm there, judgment will happen. Because that's the whole story. And when we tell half the story, we leave that part out. But not everybody's judged, are they? Let's, let's find out about Noah. Verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In verse 9, This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. So amidst all this wickedness, All this wickedness is occurring. There's Noah, good, solitary Noah, who's righteous. So what does it mean to be righteous here? It certainly can't mean that he's perfect, because he's human. And in fact, it doesn't. The Hebrew doesn't even allow for that. The Hebrew word for righteous uh, has a habitual sense, not an absolute sense. So when David says, I'm righteous in your eyes in the Psalms, He's saying, I'm habitually righteous, not I'm absolutely righteous. It's not a categorical statement. It's an idea of saying, it's my habit, it's my way of life, that I walk with the Lord. That's what it's being said here. And in fact, that comes out in a little bit later when it talks about, it says right there in verse 8, or excuse me, 9, Noah was a righteous man, but what does it say? It says, blameless among the people, which is this idea of almost comparative righteousness. Like Noah walks with the Lord, and he's, he's habitually righteous, and compared to everybody else, he's righteous. The Lord says the same thing in Genesis 7, verse 1. He says, The Lord says to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your family, because I have found you righteous, what? In this generation. It's this idea, there's even a concept of mercy and grace being bestowed upon Noah. He's not absolutely righteous. He's, he's, he walks with the Lord. He's habitually righteous. But he makes mistakes, he sins, but compared to those around him, at least the Lord can work with him. Which I think is what is expressed in Genesis 6 verse 8 when it says, the Lord found favor in Moses. 
or excuse me, in Noah. I don't know where that came from. The Lord found favor in Noah. Because if Noah were absolutely righteous, it probably would have sounded like this. And Noah earned favor in the eyes of the Lord. But it doesn't. It says the Lord found favor in Noah. And so we see, even with Noah, there's grace in this righteousness. But I think this righteousness can be described in other ways. I think Hebrews describes this righteousness best when it talks about faith. Hebrews 11 Verse 7 says this, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Noah, Noah's obedience comes from this thing that Hebrews calls holy fear, which does not show up when we tell half the story. Noah recognizes that mankind is wicked and that God is, is limited in his patience. And he has this holy fear. And it's not this kind of trepidation. It's not fright. It's the recognition that God will judge, that God is righteous, that God's patience is limited, and Noah recognizes it. So when God goes to Noah and says, build a boat, Noah doesn't, Noah doesn't talk back. In fact, Noah doesn't even speak at all in this account until he's off the boat in the new land. It's the first time we even find Noah speaking. God says, build a boat. And it says, and Noah did as the Lord commanded. Because Noah knows when God speaks, he's serious. And how often when we have half the gospel, do we read this and think, God can't be serious. Bear my cross? Give everything I have? Love the Lord with all my heart? God can't be serious. I think Noah knows that he's serious. And this is our third and final point this morning, that the third part of a full story is that salvation comes through this holy fear. Salvation is through faith. Just like Hebrews 11 says, by faith Noah believed. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and through faith Noah feared God more than man. I think, again, in our half-gospel lives, the way we live with, and God told Noah to build a boat, when the story starts that way, we have this, it's not the kind of story that breeds the faith that is robust enough to deal with the fear of man. When mankind starts to go, what are you doing there? You go, well, building a boat. I don't, I don't know why I'm building the boat. You know, God said it, but you know, he probably won't. You're right, he probably will not judge us. I doubt the rain will come. Noah doesn't do that. Noah believes the Lord. He fears the truth of God more than the jaunting of men. So as the, as the people around are, are heaping aspersions on Noah, as we can imagine, I don't, I don't know if it actually happened, but as imagine, in 2 Peter it says that Noah was a preacher to the unrighteous. So as this is happening, you have this, the only thing that propels Noah through obedience is this holy fear that what God says he will do and my fear is when we tell half the story that we're breeding Christians whose faith cannot survive difficult times. Because God doesn't just say, Noah, I'm going to put you in a boat and save you. He says, build the boat. And we just assume that when the boat gets built and the door opens, all these animals in two by two walk towards the boat because that's how we draw it. Right? And that's what the cartoons show. 
It doesn't say that. It says, Noah, it says God says to Noah, go get the animals. And we just assume, like this little stuffed animal, that all the animals stick their head out of the portals and they smile for a year. All right? Well, there's another end that isn't sticking out of the portal, right? And Noah and his family have to clean. They have to do all this stuff for a year. This is work, right? God says, build a boat. Get to work. God says, get the animals. It's work. Get on the boat. It's work. And there's this thing that happens. After Noah builds this boat, he says, now get in it. And, and Noah and his family climb in it, and the Lord shuts the door, and there's seven days of silence, which is kind of bizarre because we think it probably took a long time to build this boat, and Noah's on it for a long time. But I bet you those seven days were particularly hard because Noah's on this boat with like, moo, quack. You know, and he's sitting for seven days with all the bleats, and nothing is happening. And haven't we been there in a life? Haven't we been there in a place in our life where we've put our faith on the line and we've been obedient to the Lord and we get to where we expect something to happen and nothing happens? And you kind of have this exhale. Like, almost like if people could see me now, I'd be the laughing stock. And I wonder what Noah did for seven days, sitting there, waiting, waiting for rain, you know, I don't know what. Was this a big joke? And then finally after seven days, drip, drip, drip. That's the kind of faith that we're called to, which is not the kind of faith that half the story cultivates. When we get a faith from a, a gospel that's preached that doesn't deal with the wickedness of man, that doesn't deal with the justice of God, and that does not deal with deep, enduring faith, what happens when hard times hit? When we're told God has a plan for your life, which is true, God wants to bless you, which is true, what happens when we realize that that blessing is going to come in a lifetime of building a boat for our family and all of creation's animals? It doesn't survive. It doesn't endure. But when we have a faith that is built on a holy fear of the Lord, when our faith is pointed at God and not at what actually we're doing, when our faith is angled that the Lord said it and so I'm going to do it and not on what result do I think this will bear and then I'll validate my faith with that. Do I think this will be successful? Then I'll place my faith in it. When, when it's not that way, but when it's God said it, then it, our faith endures even when things look like they're going wrong. Real faith labors for the Lord. Real faith endures hardship. Real faith endures So that's the first half of our story. That's the first half of the whole story. And my sense is, is that when we tell half of the story, we're not telling the story at all. When we preach half the gospel, we're not really preaching a gospel at all because people don't need a, see a need to confess and they don't see a need for God's grace. And that is the whole story. Please pray with me.